Players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Seasoned Dungeoneer, White Plume Adventurer, Chalice of the Void, and many others, battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat. They all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Thraben University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Eminence Gaming and Tales of Adventure. Get sweet legacy staples and much more at ToAMagic.com. Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, White Card Winter. I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben U, joined by... I am Bosch and Roll, a.k.a. Brian Koval, or vice versa. And I am Brian Cook of the Epic Storm. All right. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introduction and pre-show banter for this week, available in our Patreon-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access. Shout out to our new patrons since the last episode. We've got Tom, Nick, Hal, Dahl, Sean, Vivian, Matthew, and Mikey. That's a lot of new patrons, and they, along with anyone else who joins our Patreon now, is going to figure out what got Phil topless in a hotel pool. That was discussed in the Patreon pre-show. Pre-show gets weird, folks. It gets real weird. But what's not weird is Eminence Gaming, who is sponsoring this episode. Eminence Gaming is hosting Silicon Dynasty, a CEDH 4K, yes, 4K, in San Jose, California, January 14th to 15th. Registration is now open. Please visit https colon slash slash eminence dot events to sign up. I'm super jealous of anyone who can go to this. I was actually seriously going to go and then realized it conflicts with another magic tournament that I'm already enrolled in. Please join that if you can. I had some people asking me about it. Uh, I mentioned that there was a CDH event coming up in Southern California and people were like, wait, what? Where? It's here. This is it. I will be going to one of their events in Atlanta next year. Uh, already on my schedule for the summer. I'm very much looking forward to it. Same. I'm. They have one in Philly and then one or Philly-ish, Phoenixville, southeastern PA, and then one in Atlanta a couple months apart. I intend to be at both. Eminence is great. We're going to go ahead and do two sections today. The first one is going to have a handful of patron-specific questions. And the second section is going to be all about white initiative and prep for Eternal Weekend. Our first question comes from a person whose name is not in English. I'm going to do my best. Kumgin. And they ask, Some time ago, Wizards did a stream about the impact of supplemental products on non-commander singleton formats. There are quite a few that have been around for a while, such as Canlander, Gladiator, Seven Point Highlander, European Highlander, etc. Where do you see those formats in the future? Are you interested in trying out casual formats other than CEDH? I'm always interested to see how skilled players approach deck building in singleton formats. We have talked about this a bit in the past, the various community run formats. I don't want to speak for all of us. I think as a pod, we're kind of low on them, not their existence or anything. I know for me personally, it's just a matter of time and bandwidth. Uh, the, the ultimate economic decision, what do you do with your time? that you're awake each day and your time on this earth. And I play so much magic already. I cannot learn another format, especially if the incentives of 
traveling regularly to play tournaments for those formats isn't going to be there. I think all these things are awesome. When someone shows me a list, I'm like, okay, cool. That's what the format's about. I appreciate that. But personally, I have no interest in going down this rabbit hole. I just can't. I can't. I don't have time or money to to build more decks. One of the biggest things for me is, is it on Magic Online? That's how I play 99.9% of Magic these days. Like, if it's not on Magic Online as something I can just queue up and play, I'm not interested. So that's the biggest thing for me. But also, if I was to, you know, build a paper deck, how difficult would it be to play Canlander or Seven Point Highlander? Yes, I'm aware that there's private discords you can join, but it's so much work to, like, set up this webcam thing, play against a stranger. Are you even going to have a good time facing some stranger over webcam? I don't know. It's just, it's really tough to build a community or a following or even a local play group among these really tiny formats. So I, I think for a success story here, uh, I'm going to mention Justin Parnell, um, who is associated with Star City Games. Parnell, I think, has spent the better part of the last month trying to bully Magic, or sorry, uh, Arena into putting Gladiator back because he enjoyed the format so much and just couldn't play it anywhere. And finally, he got access to Gladiator again. Then he was like, okay, I'm going to put up seven Gladiator gameplay videos on YouTube because I enjoy this format so much. But he, I think he spent, like, I think it was a month just, like, tweeting every day, like, can we have Gladiator back? Can we have a Gladiator queue? Can I play this format that I enjoy? And it is often an uphill battle trying to get games in for a lot of these niche formats, even if the gameplay is good and you find them enjoyable. So I think for a lot of these formats, they don't have a large chance of being successful outside of like the local level where you have a bunch of people being super passionate about them. And I, I just want to be super clear. We're not down on these formats existing or down on the people who play them. And I have many friends who are into pre-modern and old school and all these various community run formats. And I am glad they have that outlet and it does look cool what they're doing. I personally just don't have time for it. Uh, the, the juice is not worth the squeeze on that. I think a lot sometimes about tiny leaders and how I was convinced that was going to take off. I mean, out of all these small formats, tiny leaders seemed like the one that was prepped to take off. Miniature commander, it just made perfect sense. But I think that sometimes some of these smaller formats do cannibalize each other. Like they might be really good ideas, but the player base only has a chance to do so many things. Sort of like what Brian mentioned is Seven Point Highlander similar enough to Commander where you're going to cannibalize each other and just make sure that one of them never lives? Like, is that something that happens with these? And I think about that all the time. Uh, there's another version of EDH I played uh, very shortly. It was called like Boats or something or like 16, but I don't remember. But it was like 40 card Commander. Uh, and I built a deck for that. And then at the after not playing the deck after I built it, I was like, what am I doing with this anymore? And that was sort of the last straw for me. I have an old school deck in my closet. I built it probably six years ago. And the only time it comes out of the box is when I remember there's a card in it that I want to put somewhere else. Or I'm like, oh, that deck had four mana vaults in it. Now I play EDH. I'm going to put that in four EDH decks. I have a Chaos Orb in that deck. That thing's kind of expensive. I should move that to a binder. Oh, Triskelion. I had four Triskelions in there. I'm going to pull the the original Antiquities one and put it in an EDH deck that likes it. That That's all the play that my old school deck has gotten. And not an indictment on old school, just my ability to play it. 
Have we uh, beaten poor Kumgan into the ground far enough yet? <laughs> Thank you for your question. Sorry if your our answer wasn't exciting. I would like to give one exception or well, one similarity. So I talk about playing formats on Magic Online, a format that I play a ton on Magic Online. It's probably my second or third favorite format period is Popper. I have at least five completely Japanese foil Popper decks. I've played them zero times in paper. Take what I say with a grain of salt because I love Popper, but it's just really tough to play it in paper, which I think some of these formats also struggle with. Popper, you get the occasional big payout, though. I went to a Grand Prix a number of years ago where I just had Popper in my backpack just in case. I didn't even know they were running the Popper Championship that weekend, and I ended up getting second place in that, and it was it was a delight. Or maybe it was third place. Yeah, the, the finals was Elves versus Is It. And I lost the Is It Mirror in top four. So I ended up getting third place in that tournament and some nice prizes to go with it. Recently, probably not recently, it was probably pre-COVID, but you know, my brain on pause. There was a big popper event at some West Coast event where the professor added a tropical island to the, the pool just to spice up the popper attendance. And, you know, you if you sit on a popper deck long enough, you'll get a chance to pay it out. Uh, I don't know if anyone's ever going to run a Gladiator 5k. Now, one other thing that I want to mention here is if you find a community that's super active over, say, Spell Table or something like that, you might have an absolute blast and you might have a community that you can connect with. Many of us are doing that with EDH and or CEDH right now. And if you can find a similar community for your singleton format, like knock yourself out, have a blast doing it. Yeah, CEDH. Uh, I... I caught kind of the the upswing, like the tail end of the the main COVID lockdown about a year and a half ago. Uh, I guess it was deep in the heart of COVID times. That format was starting to transition from 40, 50 people on a Discord into a publicly traded stock, basically. And now it's pretty much just fully out there with all kinds of people dipping their hands in. It's experiencing growing pains, but it did start from that that same sort of modest root that a lot of these other community things have come from. And some of these, I, I don't know the history of all of these. I know some of these casual formats are are old, like predate Commander old and power to them. But Commander is the premier way to play Magic at this point. And a lot of these formats have not hit that despite being around longer. And And there's... There's probably a reason for that. Our next question, or really two of them, come from Vivian. First one, you've all made comments in the past on this topic, but as a competitive person, I would like your thoughts on the difference between playing whatever the absolute best thing is and playing your thing the absolute best, whatever that is. Like what stakes or other factors affect when you skew one way or the other? And I think I'll start on this one. As I've gotten this question a lot from my Discord peeps recently, since the initiative has picked up a lot. There's a lot of people in my Discord who play Stompy decks, Moon Stompy, Humans, Death and Taxes, things like that. And right now they're asking me, like, should I switch to initiative for Eternal Weekend? And one of the things that I tell them is, how much time do you realistically have to prep with a new deck? Because if you have the time to put in the work, you can gain massive percentage points by learning the new most powerful thing. But if you don't have the time to really put in the work and really do your testing, you're probably going to be better off sticking with the thing that you have hundreds of games in with 
and that you have accumulated experience with over time. Yeah, I, I want to say two things about this. First of them is the, the phrasing of the question has me slightly concerned because it starts with playing whatever the absolute best thing is. There is rarely an absolute best thing. Unless you're in a truly broken format, Ren and Six Delver or uh, Death Ray Chem and Grixis Delver or Underworld Breach for the, the, the 60 minutes that was legal in the format. Unless the format's truly broken, there is not an absolute best thing. I guess the word absolute is, is the one that's getting me like the there's always a deck that has the highest win rate or the highest meta share or whatever. But even in our expressive iteration Delver world that we all we spent a whole episode talking about how we we think that should probably not be. There are still decks that are pretty positive against Delver, and you can choose to play them, and they're viable against the field as well. There there rarely will be an absolute best thing. I think I can probably speak to this as someone who plays the same or has played the same Storm deck for 16 years at this point. It's okay to not play the best thing if you don't find it enjoyable. I'll say that. Uh, I've played a lot of Delver in my life, dating back to Rug Threshold to Canadian Threshold, and all the variants in between. You don't have to play those things if you don't particularly find them fun. You can still maximize your win percentages in other ways, like being a master at it or knowing the matchup better than your... I know the Delver matchup better than the Delver players know the matchup against Storm. There's a good chance that I will beat them. If I go in being worse than the Delver Mirror, there's 0% chance I'm going to win. But also, there's no reason you can't switch. There's been a few times in my life where I've just switched to Delver randomly for a challenge and done well. If you aren't feeling a deck, like right now, I'll say this. If I was going to Eternal Weekend, I would consider not playing the Epic Storm. I think it's terribly positioned. If you think that your pet deck or deck that you enjoy playing isn't well off, there's no shame in jumping chip. Uh, that's completely fine. Like you're spending time, money, all that good stuff. Don't be afraid to switch decks if you think that it's a bad decision. On a slightly different note, don't let your emotional attachment and a sunk cost fallacy, don't let things like that keep you on a deck when you really think you should be switching. There have been plenty of times throughout my Magic career where I have like soldiered on trying to play Death and Taxes where I really shouldn't have been doing that. And I would have way more tournament results if I just would have said like, okay, idiot, like, you know, this deck isn't one of the better things to be doing. Why are you still playing it right now? Yeah, I forced elves down the barrel the entire time since his Divining Top and Terminus were legal together. I only started playing blue decks after they banned top. And then I switched to the deck that wanted top previously. The the versions of elves back then had to get real weird to beat a Terminus that could be deployed at instant speed and floated for the whole game and yeah, i don't recommend that and on brian's point of what works for you versus what is abstractly the best there was period in vintage where mishra's workshop decks were just completely busted obviously the best thing to be doing completely miserable to play against and that's why now if you look at the vintage restricted list there's a lot of really preposterous looking artifacts on it they basically had to ban every artifact until mishra's workshop was a defensible card to be legal and i just got so sick of losing to mishra's workshop with blue decks that i was like i'm playing playing shops at Eternal Weekend this year. No one can stop me. I played the same 75 as Dr. Richard Shea, and Dr. Richard Shea ended up losing the finals to a shop mirror in that Eternal Weekend, and I went 0-3 drop. It, we had the same deck. Uh, I, I believe we are in a comparable realm of, of skill and understanding of of the format he was just dialed in on the deck in a way that i wasn't. I have nothing but disdain for shops. I hate that deck. Fuck that deck. And I think in some invisible, intangible, or some way 
that impacted my play of the deck. I, I don't know how. And then after O3ing with shops, I decided the next year I was just going to play something I like. And I found a crazy list of Paradoxical Outcome that included Mind's Desire and Tendrils, both of which are not good cards in that shell. And I won the tournament. So checkmate, Atheist. Joy and enjoying what you're doing is worth something. Your deck still has to be good. If you're having a bad time, it will probably show through your play. Like I, th There's been a theoretical question kicking around in my head where like, if Wizards printed one red deal 10 damage to any target, just like Super Lightning Bolt, would I play Burn? Because I don't want to. I hate that. I think I would have a terrible time. Like how how far ahead of the field would a deck like Burn have to be before I pick it up in in my wheelhouse at like the way that I like to play Magic? And the answer is probably one mana for ten damage gets printed. There was a second question here. Summarizing it, I love Smokestack, and it's gone from good to fine for fun to completely unplayable. I'm wondering if there have been any cards or archetypes that you have felt that way about and what did you do? I've experienced that throughout my history of playing Legacy. When I started playing Legacy, it was type 1.5. And when I built Rug Threshold, Werebear was the premier threat of the format. I've fallen in love and out of love with so many cards over that time period since 2004 where it's tough to say. I know that I've talked about it recently with like dress and predict falling out of favor and people wanting that back, but I've dealt with that my whole experience playing. Like for a long time, Exalted Angel was my favorite card. Exalted Angel, six mana white, four, five flying lifelink creature. Huge fan. For a long time, it was Grape Shot. I, I haven't played Grape Shot really in like two years. Now I think it's probably Galvanic Relay. I think it waxes and wanes as time goes on. And like sometimes your favorite cards just aren't as good as they used to be. Welcome to Power Creep. Yep. Uh, my example is more recent i don't have a a card i've loved for 20 years like smokestack but urza in modern urza lord high artificer when that card was printed modern horizons one came out i was there i i top aided the star city event that weekend with a really rudimentary urza combo deck I played Urza through the next year of Modern. I won Grand Prix Columbus with a Simic Urza deck or a Saltai Urza deck. Then they banned a few cards. We lost Mox Opal. We lost some of the other support things that Urza, or Arkham's Astrolabe got banned. Urza is just this really sexy, incredible card with a lot of text that rewards gameplay that I enjoy. The support simply isn't there. Also, Solitude and Fury got printed. What the hell? Both of those pick off Urza nice and clean in a way that is miserable to me. Yeah, uh, I miss my boy Urza. And what can you do? Uh, I, part of the question is, what do you do when you do that? And I, I think there are three options. And the one that I think all the members of this podcast would recommend is learn something new. Uh, we're we're pretty much always on the decks don't deserve to be viable. Cards don't deserve to be viable. You earn that by winning. And if your deck or card isn't winning then you don't deserve viability within outside of that then there is like you can be the positive smokestack person just i love smokestack here comes vivian with the smokestack and we know what you're about and it's going to be a good time or you can be the miserable smokestack person grumbling about kids on their lawn and cards are, are printed wrong and watsy's ruining the game and if smokestack's not good i'm gonna have a bad time so a lot of it is mentality and then if your mentality is the pure winner's mentality, then you just got to find something that scratches that itch, but isn't that. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel. Like, if I think back to some of my early days of Legacies, like, I can remember playing against, like, The Gate. Like, a mono-black control deck. It had things like Gatekeeper of Malakar in it. 
uh Neverno's disc was in it uh and there was all, all sorts of like sweet things that are just unquestionably too slow for current legacy just have been power crept out and then i can look at other mono black decks from today which while maybe not tier one are extremely tournament viable and i think you have to look for the things that capture the spirit of what you want to be doing like i want to play this mono black deck because i love playing mono black decks even if some of the individual cards and portions of those strategies have just kind of fallen to the wayside it's interesting when you think about stacks in particular. It's named after smokestacks, right? When you go back to an earlier era of Legacy, the prison decks were all non-creature lockpiece decks. And over time, we've seen them shift to being, you know, creature prison decks to mostly tempo creature decks that are disruptive. And it's an interesting timeline, but I understand why maybe somebody wants to go back to that previous era where things weren't so creature-based. But if you're interested in that, Maybe you look at Planeswalker Prison as an alternative. It doesn't necessarily need to be Smokestack, but it might give you the feel of what you're looking to play for. And if you want to play th these heathen decks, I'll jokingly say, check out Phil's channel. You can play Yoel Hops and Karn the Great Piece of Trash and everything else. There's probably something there for you. Yeah, I remember the the vintage days where Shops Mirrors basically came down to counting permanents because Smokestack was going to run someone out first and whoever missed that first land drop or failed to develop another object that could be consumed by the stack uh, was going to lose. It might take 10 turns, but that person was going to lose. That is a tough type of magic to replicate elsewhere, probably for the best. No offense to your personal taste, but holy crap, is that miserable magic for most people? I will say I've been enjoying the hell out of Tanglewire. Every time I get to play it on my channel in present day Legacy, that card just slaps. Just It's still four time walks. It's still bonkers. And it's in that vein of stupid Urza block artifacts that make the game no fun for one player. Without going too deep into this, because I want to keep the episode moving. Also, consider new cards that can try to keep your old strategy viable. So for example, once every couple of months, someone asks me to play Armageddon Stacks because nostalgia. And every time I do, I try to test something new and try to find some new card that can maybe push it back into that realm of playability. I think if you keep trying to ram your head into the wall, playing the same thing in the same way, it's just not going to work. Try to innovate when you can. Amen to that. Let's go to our final question. This is from Colton, the number one storm fan aka zoomer bryant cook i've listened to the episode on tournament prep but after brian's amazing win at okotober is there anything we should keep in mind for preparing for cedh tournaments or playing high level tournament cedh 10 drills till i die baby ad nauseum or bust okay i think this sh there were some other words in there but the core of the question is uh, do you prep for a cedh tournament differently than a 60 card tournament i would say no learning the format understanding that fourth seat has different incentives and different mulligan decisions than first seat does in a pot of four knowing how to politic or resist politicking make good decisions assess threats correctly there are things a little different about that format than than two player but all the same stuff applies play some games get some table time understand what's going on think about the cards in your list what you want to beat what you're soft to what you're willing to be soft to what gaps you want to close and then weekend of the tournament eat a good breakfast get a good night's sleep 
take care of yourself, drink water throughout the day. None of that changes. One thing that I've realized about CDH, and I'm in a number of discords, I am definitely the old guy. I am 33 years old and people are like, yeah, okay, grandpa. I'm like, how old are you? And they're like 16, 18. I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm definitely grandpa here. And when they talk, I mean, I'm definitely just like not in their lingo or whatever. But a lot of these people, like the night before Oktoberfest, were talking about like getting, you know, uh, a little crazy. And that's just like not what I would have done going into an event. So we've talked about in previous episodes, but take care of yourself, get good rest, all that stuff that Brian just said. But think about what you're there for. If you're there to do well, maybe don't get sloppy drunk the night before. If you're there to have fun, treat it like a vacation, have a good time with your friends, do whatever you got to do. But it's really tough to be able to do both. You can't get blackout drunk the night before and do well the next day. Pick what you want to do. Yeah, I'm not going to call anyone out by name, but there were a number of people going from day one into day two of Oktoberfest who were at staying at the same place as me, or at least hanging out in the place that I was staying. Some of them were imbibing of, of the spirits. Some were just staying up late around 1115, which was later than I wanted to go to sleep, but I got caught up in a long game of casual commander as those tend to go. The second that game ended, I was like, all right, I'm off to bed. And they were all like, okay, see you tomorrow or whatever. Two of those players ended up making the elimination rounds uh, along with me. One of them made top 16 and I ended up winning the tournament. And I don't know if my extra three or four hours of sleep was the difference between a top 16 and a win. We can't rule it out. Just throwing that out there. Also on the subject of being the old guy, uh, same. I am going to be... 35 years old on the Sunday of eternal weekend. It will be my actual birthday in the building. I'm hoping I'm playing a top eight at the time. 35 is like ancient compared to some of the kids coming in. Uh, a lot of them are like 22, 23. Some are literally in high school too. And I had this great game against Adam from the sad Nas podcast in magic 30 where, and, and I think he's like 22. We got into this sort of not really argument, but I would say heated politics where we were both the threat. We were kind of equally threats at the table and we were both trying to convince the table that the other one was the threat. We sparred a little bit, butted some heads. I ended up convincing the table. At the end, uh, we had some sort of exchange where he was like, like after he got eliminated, I talked the person into just killing them with Ishai or something. And he was like, oh, that was fun. And I was like, yeah, not bad for a kid. And then I won the game. Yeah, I don't mind leaning into uh, grandpa mode here. It's kind of fun. Strengthening some of my co-hosts' thoughts here. Stay hydrated. Go to the bathroom. At these CEDH events, some of your rounds are going to go extremely long. You don't want to be the person at the end of the pod who is, like, having to pee for the last 10 minutes. Like, you don't want to be the person who is dehydrated going into top 8. Please take care of yourself. Like, your tournament prep goes a long way for preparing you for the day, but that doesn't mean that you can slack off on like the biological stuff. And let me, another layer to this is be careful at dinner Saturday night. The first day of play is over. Everyone wants to hang out. This is the night, like most people are traveling on Friday. They have to leave Sunday. Saturday is the night you get to chill and hang out with your friends. Let me tell you about the bathroom situation Sunday morning at any magic tournament. Every stall is full of the most horrific sounds and smells you can imagine. There's a line out the door of dudes waiting for their chance with their legs squeezed together. It's just everybody paying for their Saturday night sins Sunday morning at the venue. You can both feel better and not have to enter that hellscape. 
if you treat yourself a little better Saturday night. All right. With that being said, now let's talk about an actual tournament. Eternal Weekend is coming up, and I'm sure many of our listeners are going to be preparing for that. Initiative is probably going to be the talk of the town. We're going to start by kind of running through some recent tournament results, kind of building that narrative like, hey, Initiative is something that needs to be on your radar, while also talking about a few other decks. And then maybe we're going to recommend some tech or things that you should be thinking about for EW itself. And probably our starting point here should be the Asian equivalent of Eternal Weekend. Uh, which formally is the 2022 Asia Championship, which was won by an initiative deck, but a mono-red one instead. Moon Stompy, with four copies of Caves of Chaos Adventurer, took down the event, with three copies of Blue-Red Delver in top eight, six more copies of Blue-Red Delver in the top 32, with four-color control variants being pretty popular as well. Yeah, that sounds like... The legacy format I know and love, born out over a large event. I don't know what the player count was over there. Without looking it up, I think it was like 380. It was it was big. That's a big event. And on the topic of Eternal Weekend, I just had a coaching session with someone who wanted some Eternal Weekend prep, and they were asking some of the practical questions of like, how long is this event going to be? I haven't played Vintage in Paper since decks cost $2,000. What's the, the safety security measure? Like, how can I keep my... $100,000 deck safe. Uh, they were asking me a lot of those sort of questions. And Eternal Weekend's a big tournament. You're going to play eight or nine rounds of Vintage. You're going to play 10 or 11 rounds of Legacy. This is a big, big tournament. And seeing these decks like Blue Red Delver, Four Color Control, make it float to the top over those long tournaments. I'm impressed that Moonstompy ended up winning it. Uh, I know Phil will may or may not agree with me here, but at least my experience, uh, I, I feel like those decks, they have to high roll. And like a lot of that is in your mulligan decision and sequencing. Like it's not, I'm not saying these decks are based on luck, but these are decks that keep their opening hand and then make a plan based on that and usually have to stick to that plan and make it work. Over 10 rounds plus top eight, Moonstompy only losing one match is pretty impressive compared to all these brainstorm decks that that stuck with stuck it out the whole time. Phil, I want to offer you a chance to rebut that. Uh, am, am I completely off base here? First, if you are interested in this topic, I have a 2000 word essay on my Patreon that goes into a lot of detail about the things that Brian is talking about. I agree, but frame it slightly differently. The thing is right now in in current legacy, I don't think Moon Stompy has to dodge that many matchups. There's not that many things that I'm super afraid of right now. Um, I know personally, um, when playing Moonstompy, I'm pretty scared of Doomsday. It's just a card that, like Chalice and Trinis, uh, a deck that Chalice and Trinisphere don't really impact, and you're oftentimes a little bit too slow to just kill them. But I don't tend to feel like I see Doomsday as much in paper as I do in, on Magic Online. And other than that, I'm usually looking to dodge things like Show and Tell. And if you say you're playing show and tell right now in Legacy, unless you tell me something like, I know exactly why I'm playing this, I'm playing this because I think it's going to fight against initiative. I think the matchup spread for Moon Stompy is okay right now, but like, I, I think Brian is right in that in these longer events, if you're not making very informed matchup, like data-driven decisions, you're going to fall to the wayside a lot of the time. I'd like to make two points here. So I think a big difference between paper and online for Doomsday is that in paper, I'm calling the judge the second you take too long. 
Magic Online, you have that nice little clock that lets you know when you're running out of time. And I've sat there for 10 minutes while Doomsday players pick out their perfect five cards and sequence them correctly. In paper, I would have been annoying the crap out of you the entire time. It's just a very different play experience, and there's nothing wrong with calling a judge for slow play. You do not deserve 10 minutes to make your pile, but Magic Online does give you that luxury of doing it. You can also look at Doomsday piles in a spreadsheet when you're playing online. In paper, call a judge immediately. So it's definitely just different. The other thing I wanted to mention was Eternal Weekend uh, or the Asia Championship in, um, I believe it was in Japan. One, shout out to Mike Noble. He's going to be glad to hear this Belcher made top eight. What? Belcher? And it was like 2013 Belcher with like no upgrades. Like this person clearly woke up out of a cave, registered their Belcher without getaxian probes and went to town. The other deck that did well was a very wonky ant build with Paradise Lost, which isn't available on Magic Online yet. Come on. Come on, Magic Online. Add it already. I'd like to play with it. What is the the actual name of that card? Is is it just Pair O Dice? Pair O Dice Lost. Okay. Is it Pair hyphen O apostrophe hyphen Dice? Or are there hyphens? There's like weird punctuation specifically, but it's it's definitely O, not of. That card is not on Magic Online. But Combo Decks in general did really well, which I thought was weird. So it was the first week of initiative. I think there was probably less Mono White initiative decks. There were two copies in top 16. But then Moonstompy won it. So it was higher combo representation than I would have guessed. I think coming into the American Eternal Weekend, I think there's going to be a lot more mono white initiative. I would expect combo to be on the downswing, including Doomsday. I think Doomsday will probably put a copy into top eight or so. But I think we won't see what happened at the Legacy Pit where there was several copies in top eight and top 16. I would not expect that coming around this time. Also, just in terms of matchup profiles, I am terrified of Doomsday while playing Moonstompy. And I am not at all afraid of Doomsday while I am playing the initiative deck. Throwing it out there, the ability to play a turn one initiative creature, following it up with Forge and Trap often means that Doomsday lines that pass the turn are just completely not viable. And that has shored up a matchup that traditionally is very scary for Stompy decks. There's also Spirit of the Labyrinth, and a lot of your creatures are actually disruptive instead of just being beaters, which does matter. Also, you have some super cute sideboard tech in some of these builds of, uh, what is it, uh, Lauren of the Third Path. You're going to play that as a Rex Sage anyway, and you can tap it to make your uh, Doomsday opponent draw a card and lose the game with their Thassa's Oracle on the stack. While we're talking about white initiative real quick, th- this isn't in our notes, and I think it's important to say because we're talking about preparing for a paper tournament. Paradise Lost was mentioned. That's a card that's not on Magic Online. Triumph of St. Catherine is getting a lot of buzz in white-based control decks that's not on magic online the initiative deck if it wasn't just released on magic online i don't think anyone would have it on the radar and it's a huge meta factor now and i don't think it's just because it's new it's because it's actually good there's also uh, i think it's called pox walker there there's a new like dredge hogak monster that jumps out of the graveyard for free uh, that was also in the warhammer 40k decks there are a number of archetypes that have major upgrades uh, talking about Hogak, talking about miracles, talking about, I don't know if calling it an upgrade in Storm, but is a thing you can do in Storm that are just not visible in any of our online data. And all of those cards are worth thinking about. And uh, you can't rely just on Magic Online testing to cover all the bases. At least have, if you don't have a group that you can proxy up a deck or build a, a Triumph of St. Catherine Miracles deck, if you can't do that, 
then at least have a conceptual ability to like, how do I beat a 5-5 lifelink that's going to keep coming back? Answer that question for yourself with your deck. I'd like to quickly shout out our editor, Phil Blackman. If you want to see Phil playing the Triumph of St. Catherine deck, you can go check out 90s MTG on YouTube. Their editor will be crushing face with a 5-5 lifelink. Sort of similar to Exalted Angel, right? Yeah, and just heads up, like having a 5-5 lifelinker is probably pretty good against an initiative deck that can hit you in chunks of five very consistently. Throwing it out there. Wow, these white cards are overpowered. It, look, it's, it's nice for a change. I had to deal with all of that Simic bullshit for a very long time. It is my revenge. Ban planes. No one's feeling for you, Phil. All right. So speaking of banning basic planes, like let's take a look at some data. So we recently had the showcase challenge as well where, spoilers, the Initiative Stompy decklist had the best overall win rate for the event. Or, I guess more accurately, for a deck played by more than one player, as there was one player playing Maverick who had a very deep run into the tournament. So it had a 63% win rate in the event, uh, whereas uh, Public Enemy number 2, I guess, at this point, Blue Red Delver, had a bad event at a 43% win rate, despite having the largest meta share of 64 players in that event. I'd be willing to bet that, that those two things are directly correlated. If I'm someone who has some extra QPs, I want to spike an event, but I don't play a lot of Legacy, what deck are you picking up? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Blue Red Delver. Delver. And, and you're going to like 1-3 because you don't actually know how Legacy works. And Delver is not a pick up and play deck, even if it looks like Is It Phoenix or whatever on the surface from formats other folks might be more familiar with. Yeah, I, I imagine having more players on Delver actually hurt the win rate, but... Uh, I, I'm not going to relitigate the numbers that are in front of me. Uh, Delver did have a bad event, but the good news is the good guys won in the end. Uh, Ozymandias, that's Matthew Vuk in real life, won the event with four color hot band. That's uh, the band control splashing red for Minsk and Boo and Expressive Iteration and some sideboard cards. And I was sweating about this. If you listen to our episode last last week where I was just terrified of the initiative cards. One of the things that I mentioned on my channel since then as a way to fight the initiative as a, a four color control deck is more dress downs. Because if the initiative isn't introduced to the game, then you don't have to fight over it. You don't have to take it back. They just have a 3-3 in play rather than 3-3 and the initiative. Dressdown is a great tool. I released a video where I added a second Dressdown to my sideboard. I had one in the main already. Matthew, in his winning deck, he had two Dressdowns in the main and a Torpor Orb in the sideboard. This is not messing around. That gives you seven answers to initiative things between your four Force of Wills, your two Dressdowns and Torpor Orb for their eight initiative things. And you're a blue deck with Brainstorm and they're a white deck with a mulligan decision to make. As far as card manipulation, the numbers of keeping the initiative from being introduced to the game are kind of on your side if you stack up that heavy, which then you just got to beat a creature deck. We know how to do already because we've been playing against Death and Taxes all this time. It's worth noting that those are not narrow cards. Right. Like they have applications against other decks. Like you could board in Dressdown versus Doomsday, for example, or you could even board it in against Death and Taxes, whatever. It's your best card against Urza Saga strategies. I guess they it's not boarding it in. Uh, they're already in your main deck, but yeah. Yeah, it, it's just in. Yeah, it's there. Well, we've been main decking Dressdown and Bant between zero and three copies in the main, and then there's always a copy kicking around in the sideboard if it's not in the main. We've been on Dressdown for a while over in the Bant world, and it, it's just inarguable blue pitches to force the floor is two mana cantrip you just cycle it it was not doing anything else and against creature decks like death and taxes it usually doubles as like stifle and fog where you just 
brick their Stoneforge Mystic, and then they also can't attack because their creatures don't have first strike anymore or protection. You you get a lot of value out of a card like that, and that's exactly the kind of card I'm okay going up on to also plug a horrible matchup. Brian, I have a question for you, and it's a little bit off topic, but I'd like to ask in case it's my idea is so genius that it helps someone at Eternal Weekend. It's not going to be, don't worry. Could you play St. Catherine Triumph of Miracle card in Hot Band? I would not recommend it because we're not really built to do that. Uh, you want to leave up mana often and you want to draw cards on your opponent's turn. Hot Band is basically built around Uro to draw cards, which is a card you tap out to do in your main phase. And Expressive Iteration is your card advantage engine. Narset is one of your other card advantage engines, which both whiffs on Triumph and also doesn't draw cards. Matthew actually cut Narset from his deck, which I think is a really bold but probably smart innovation. Narset's just one of those things that's been around for so long, and I don't know that the current configuration of Hot Bant really needs it to keep up in control mirrors like it used to. I don't think we need it to beat 8-cast like we used to. Really smart decision there, but other than Brainstorm or just naturally drawing it for the turn, we don't really have ways to trigger, trigger Miracle, so probably not. Though, I will say, one of the ideas that I have I don't know that I'm going to have time to flesh it out before Eternal Weekend, but it it's the top of my testing list if I get a couple free hours, is Bant Miracles. Just back off of a lot of the more tap-out stuff. Bant Miracles, if you all recall, won a Grand Prix a while ago, a couple iterations of the format ago. It might have been pre-Modern Horizons too. I don't remember what the major shift was that, that took it away, but just Miracles with Uro. And you get Triumph of St. Catherine, you get uh, Ice Fang Coatl, which is a card that both gets in front of Delver Creature and triggers a draw on your opponent's turn that can trigger Miracle. You get Mystic Sanctuary to rebuy your Terminuses. Uh, it, that is an existing deck from the past that has some new tools now that is intriguing to me. But I've currently put zero work into it other than thinking about what might go in it while I'm walking around. It's worth noting, Ice Fang is probably pretty good at stealing the initiative. Yeah, that was also an argument that pushed me in that direction. Both having a beefy 5-5 five five that can tangle with the 3-3s three on the ground and a flying 1-1 one one that can take the initiative and then hang back on Death Touch duty. Uh, there, there's a lot to like about that build, if anyone can get the pieces to line up correctly in a week and a half here. So something on the note of like Ice Fang Quaddle and Baleful Strix type Death Touchy creatures, they're maybe not as good against the initiative decks as they were against previous stompy decks so like let's let's start with like an ice fangle waddle a lot of times like you can flash it in you can trade with the goblin rabble master and your opponent is left with like a one two or whatever cool that is not a problem if you are using your ice fang coaddle to trade with an initiative creature while your opponent still has the initiative you actually haven't solved the problem and your opponent is, you know, going to trap you or they're going to make their 4-1 mana skeleton and eventually keep working towards Throne of the Dead 3. So, like, while Ice Fang Coatl is, like, cool and good and a nice piece, a, a Death Toucher is not going to solve everything on its own, even if it's evasive. Right. Yeah, my my vision for Ice Fang Coatl in that matchup is flash it in, poke for one, and then trigger a Terminus somehow. That, yeah. That's the game I'm trying to play. One thing that I want to talk about here to just make sure that like this is covered is like when we're talking about mono white initiative, we're not actually talking about one deck. There are multiple builds of this deck that are like as different as like Ant and TES right now. So like the core of the deck is always the same, but some of these decks are closer to a Stompy deck and they do play things like Chalice of the Void. 
some of them don't have Chalice so that they can play main deck Swords to Plowshares and Esper Sentinel. Some of them have a Stoneforge Mystic Package. Some don't. Some have more three-drop hate bears, um, like Archon or Anointed Peacekeeper. There is a wide range of the initiative decks, and you're going to see all sorts of stuff in them. Some will play Urza Saga. Some will splash red so they can also play Caves of Chaos Adventurer. I've seen one that I thought was Maverick at first. They went Land Bird, and I was like, oh, Maverick, and then turn two initiative creature off Ancient Tomb. Plus, like, I was like, oh, this just wasn't what I was expecting. So they come in different shapes and sizes. Yes, that deck plays Ellie Wick Tumblestrum, which is a planeswalker that lets you venture into the dungeon. Can you say that name again, Phil? Ellie Wick Tumblestrum. Ellie Wick Tumblestrum. Can you say it three times fast? Ellie Wick Tumblestrum, Ellie Wick Tumblestrum, Ellie Wick Tumblestrum. Phil teaches Latin for a living. You can stop with the the tongue games here. Uh, one thing I want to point out really quick about uh, Ellie Wick, her plus is venture, venture into the dungeon, which is different than venturing into the Undercity. But if you're already in the Undercity, you just move to the next room. So Phil, maybe you know, th- I know that if you're in the Undercity and you venture into the dungeon, you just go further into the Undercity. If you're in a dungeon and you venture the Undercity, do you go further into that dungeon? I, I believe you continue progressing through the dungeon that you're in. I don't believe you can go into okay, more that's than what one I thought. dungeon. So having Ellie Wick and the Initiative in the same deck, just make sure you know which dungeon you're about to venture into. You'd hate to just like top deck Ellie Wick on a stable board, go into, you know, the, the Tomb of the Lich King or whatever, and then draw an Initiative card and the Tomb is much worse than the Undercity. Yeah. They just sort of balance that. You can run into similar problems if you're playing the Radiant Solar version of the Mono White Initiative deck, which I don't necessarily recommend, even though I got a 5-0 with that build, because like that venture awkwardness is there. I think cards like Ephemerate and Touch the Spirit Realm do similar things to what Radiant Solar does, just better. Yeah, Touch the Spirit Realm pretty messed up in the context of this deck. If these are going to be the popular decks at Eternal Weekend, and I'm talking about initiative either mono white or splashing colors whatever is it delver hot bant slash four color control if you're someone looking to beat these decks brian phil i as a combo player i would not recommend playing combo but my recommendation would be i think mid-range actually looks pretty good right now i don't know how the two of you feel about that i'm not saying go play nick fit I'm sorry, Nick Fit fans, I wouldn't play you. It seems like large creature decks might actually be pretty good. Just Gurmag Angler Tarmogoyf kind of stuff? What are you talking about? Possibly. I, I'm genuinely curious. Eldrazi? Is Eldrazi back? Mm, probably not, but I do like the idea of Tarmogoyf right now. Is that crazy? So the initiative creatures in the mono white version often cap out at around five power. So if you can get a six booty Tarmogoyf, like that's reasonable. I think I'd disagree with you though because season dungeoneer is bullshit just the ability to give protection from all creatures to like a 5-5 or larger creature means that you can't just keep playing this like large creature defensive game this death toucher defensive great game because eventually your opponent breaks through so like i like where your head's at but i don't think it's gonna work out all right so i'd like to go back to a concept from the beginning of this episode Phil talked about why would you ever play show-and-tell variants. Good question, but if you're worried about creatures blocking up the ground, traditionally show-and-tell is very good against control decks. I mean, the deck sometimes plays random things like Besaju, but it's really, really bad against Blue-Red Delver. Do you just look to fade the largest portion of the metagame and then beat everything else? 
How does it? I mean, that's what Doomsday is doing, right? Like, could this be weekend for Show and Tell? I hate to recommend this because I'm terrified of the matchup, but yeah, Show and Tell. Uh, I think if I were to make a list of hot bands matchups that I don't want to play, Elves is near the top, Show and Tell is near the top, and I'm not excited about Moonstompy either. Like, we have the tools for that one, but it's a stress level I don't want to deal with. But probably Elves and Show and Tell are pretty good at picking apart this field that we've seen. If we talk about Moonstompy, I don't actually know how the the current builds of Elves line up against Moonstompy. That's probably on the tougher side, but Blue-Red Delver, Four-Color Control, and Initiative Stompy, I feel like Elves is a good place to be. I don't know if this was a top eight list. Goldfish doesn't give me this information, but the person went seven and two. Combo Elves did very, very well which is a version of the deck we haven't seen in some time. I'm talking about Nettle Sentinel, Heritage Druid, Quirion Ranger, a traditional elf deck that Sir Brian Koval would have played in 2014 while losing to Terminus. That deck did very, very well. And it's very different. And this is a deck that can go over initiative creatures instead of playing the value ground game. Right. And and my experience being out in the world playing Paper Magic is that that is the more common elf deck. The, the Newton Cabal... Uh, Cradle Control, Fiend Artisan, Elf, Singular Elf deck. That one is very good. The Magic Online community seems to have adopted it. I have not played against that once in real life, and there's a lot of Elves players in my area. I play a monthly Legacy event, sometimes twice in a month if I'm lucky, and Elves is well represented, and none of it is that version. It's all combo. I think part of that is how incredibly difficult that version is to play at a high level. I am a great Legacy player, and every time I play Reclaimer Elves, I just feel like I'm burning all of my brain cells trying to figure out all of the options that are available to me. The old heuristics do not carry over to that version. No, it is not even really that deck anymore. It's something totally new and actually totally old. It's closer to Maverick than Elves, honestly. Yeah, it, it, they've basically invented uh, The Rock from 20 years ago. They, they've gone all the way around and turned this combo deck into The Rock. But The Rock, back in the day, uh, with uh, Phyrexian Plague Lord and Spiritmonger and Ravenous Baloth, just all these creatures that did cool stuff and were hard to deal with. And awesome. Uh, good, good for them for figuring that out, but... That's also flipped a lot of the matchups like death and taxes used to be the ultimate laugher for elves. Like, all right, you basic planes, either vial, you're dead GG. But now that you don't have that gas pedal and you're a creature deck, death and taxes is built to chew up creature decks. And uh, it is some of the matchups have flipped, but the ones that are still good are the ones that we just listed at the top of the metagame and from the Asia top eight. So something cool about this deck list that I want to cover, because we did an episode where we talked a lot about the new Lord creatures and the Leaf Crown Visionary made this elf list. And if you're unfamiliar, it's a green green for a 1-1 elf druid. Other elves you control get plus one, plus one. And then it has Glimpse of Nature if you pay a green. So whenever you cast an elf spell, you may pay green draw card. So you essentially have six copies of Glimpse of Nature. Two of them you have to pay a little bit of additional mana for. And then a card I didn't even know existed until I just hovered over it. Sylvan Anthem. If you take a wild guess, you're probably going to be pretty close on this one. Green, green for an enchantment. Green creatures you control get plus one, plus one. I would have guessed that. It's close enough to Glorious Anthem or Crusade, whatever. But then it has whenever a green creature, whenever a green creature enters the battlefield under your control, scry one. This list is super combo focused, even more than I would have guessed. And aggressive. Like it it's the it sounds like I haven't looked at this list. I'm just learning about it as you read off the cards. And having those two new lords and Sylvan Anthem in the deck, this is clearly a deck that 
wants to threaten a combo, but can also just start pack ratting you, just turning four four sideways, and you die quick to that too. So the the word on the street that I have heard about Leaf Crown Visionary is that it's not particularly strong, but I want to say that with the caveat that a lot of the uh, like vocal elves players online have switched to fiend artisan builds, and it's like no surprise that like Leaf Crown Visionary would be extremely bad in those builds. Um, but it's it's very interesting. This is a unusual list, and I mean that in the best way possible. It's also just bad practice to rule out a card saying it's yeah. bad. There's not a single bad word on leaf crown visionary it's a two drop it buffs your squad it draws cards all of those are powerful words it, it's all about context it's about opportunity cost of what are you playing this instead of uh, maybe it doesn't make the cut a lot of the time but looking at a card with all upside and an efficient mana cost and saying that card's bad, you're probably going to hurt yourself over your career more than you help yourself with that mentality one interesting thing to note about this list is it's not playing any cute stuff and by that, I mean, there's no main deck scavenging ooze, main deck collector oof. There's no real targets. Like, this list wants to do one thing, and it's put a giant critter hoof behemoth on the battlefield. And I thought that was really interesting looking at it. And I think it makes a lot of sense when you consider the metagame with combo maybe not being as good. It was that weekend. I mean, there was three combo decks in me top eight. But upcoming Eternal Weekend, I'd be surprised if that was the same case. So we didn't talk about this at all, but... Like, Painter has been putting up decent results here and there as well. Um, I don't think that would be one of my top choices for Eternal Weekend, even though, like, that's a deck in my skill set. But it's around. Reanimator is around a little bit as well. Yeah, Reanimator, that one, I see way less of it on challenge results and in paper than I do in the leagues. And it could just be people trying to get a league done in 45 minutes and, and be on with their day. Or it could actually be great. I don't know, but Reanimator is always lurking and that deck's undeniably strong. As far as addressing the initiative, we talked about Dress Down Torpor Orb. Go wide cards like Young Pyromancer, Monastery Mentor, and the new Third Past Iconoclast might find a home here. Just stuffing up the board. Uh, good on blocking, good on attacking. Uh, sweepers are really good. You need a plan to either stop or take the initiative. Just sweeping up these initiative decks is not enough, but I've been loving a one of Terminus in my hot band list for about a month now. And Matthew in his tweet about his showcase win said Terminus overperformed all day. That has also been my experience. And we touched on evasive creatures a little bit with Ice Fang Coatl and that whole conversation. On the note of sweepers, um, Brotherhood's End, uh, the like new Anger of the Gods type card, is something that I saw pop up in a couple of legacy lists. Just kind of have that on the back burner as something that could be cast against you. Yeah, Brotherhood's End, that's one RR, deal three to all creatures, or destroy all artifacts that cost three or less. And a lot of people ask me about that off the spoiler because it's in that hot band territory. I'm already playing Meltdown. I'm already playing Kozilek's Return. These are effects that I want. My initial impression was, RR is pretty hard to get in Hot Band. You play two Volcanic Islands and a Taiga usually, and you don't really want to prioritize fret fetching red a lot of the time. You It's like a one and done for Minsk and Boo kind of thing, and then you want your other colors so you can Uro. But I'm willing to try that card. Uh, Pokemoki was messaging me about it the other day and kind of convinced me that consolidating the Meltdown 2 Kozilex Return slot into like one Kozilex Return, one Brotherhood's End frees up a sideboard slot and checks all the same boxes. I, I'm kind of co convinced on that. And really, 
when we were having that conversation, it reminded me that I had a set booster box of Brothers War unopened in my closet. And the first pack I opened, the rare was Brotherhood's End. And I was like, okay, if you if there's a superstitious bone in your body, we just got a big sign. I will be giving that card serious consideration for both real reasons and fake reasons. I'm really looking forward to seeing the results of Eternal Weekend. We we have a new public enemy number one for a change. It's not Delver, although Delver is still up there at the very top of the metagame as something that you should be preparing for. Uh, and we'll see how this all kind of shakes out in a couple of weeks. Chicken Tiki Masala was great. Uh, loved it.